This is Radio Free Bay Ridge. Hey there, listeners. I'm Dan. And I'm Rachel. And our episode on nativism is finally here. But before we dive in, here's a quick update on what's been going on in the neighborhood. As you heard in our most recent special episodes, our congressman Dan Donovan just finished making the rounds of New York City 11. Over the course of five coffee events, he held orderly events with his constituents. Well, mostly orderly. A couple people had strong feelings, and I think Dan got a bit upset at times. I felt like there was some unnecessary tone policing. Mm. And unfortunately, the Bay Ridge event was ended when a constituent made the emphatic statement that not knowing what was in laws you vote for is ignorant. I mean, time-wise, we were basically done anyway, but I guess it made for a dramatic ending when Dan got up and left. I don't know. That kind of seems like an accurate use of the word ignorant, but what about the last event on Staten Island? I couldn't go, but if anybody puts up audio, we can add it to the show notes. Um, Let us know if you have that audio and have a link you want to send us. Um, I know Make the Road turned out en masse and held a huge march through Staten Island. Um, I'm hoping somebody does have audio because over on Facebook, a community member posted about a 14-year-old who's protected by DACA. And she asked Dan if he'd support a Clean Dream Act. That's awesome to hear, especially since DACA and immigration really didn't come up much at the Bay Ridge event. Though part of me thinks that's because that when you don't hold a town hall for years and years, and then you decide to take an hour or two to listen to all the pent-up questions, you can only get through so much. What was Donovan's DACA response? Well, apparently after trying to dodge a few times, this girl cornered him on whether he'd vote for a Clean Dream Act without additional strings attached, like more border control or more deportation. Finally cornered. Mm Mm-hmm. What'd he say? According to the post from Facebook, he said, no. No. Just no. Right? I want audio because that's pretty dramatic if it's an accurate reporting of events. And if the reason we're not getting a Clean Dream Act in Congress is because Dan is using DACA recipients as bargaining chips, well, it says something that there have been peaceful mass protests at three of these five meetings. Anyways, it was interesting to see how attendance grew after the Bay Ridge event. I would say there were probably around 100 people at our town hall and maybe like 20 tops at the ones in Gravesend. Well done, Bay Ridge. Keep the turnout up. And speaking of turnout, if you want to help with voter registration efforts, we can put you in touch with members of the community who are working on that. And the latest on the city council front is that Justin Brennan is looking for applicants to join his transition team. Well, we'll link the job requirements in the show notes and encourage all of our neighbors to submit their application. Actually, quick fun story. Real quick. This episode is going to get really long. Okay, I posted that article on Twitter about the transition team, and guess who started grousing about backroom deals? Who? John! Uh, Quack Leone? Yeah, I have to say, (laughs) I was glad to hear from him, first of all, because he's not been tweeting us as often. Yeah, I have to say he was kind of snarky. I think because one of Golden's GOP rivals is already on the committee. Hmm. Um, But I was glad to see John seems to be doing okay. The other funny bit was that when I asked if John was going to apply to the transition team instead of just snarking, Bob Capano leapt into the conversation and he was all, (laughs) Justin knows where to find me. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like, dude, you probably do need to put in an application like any other normal human being, but why not? Go for it. And that goes for the rest of you listeners as well. We all worked really hard this last election cycle, and I don't care who you voted for when I say that, everybody did a ton of work. So let's keep doing the work. This is a marathon, not a sprint. Submit an application. Seriously. Oh, and one more thing about local government. Mayor de Blasio has come out against the Right to Know Act. If you remember from the AAANY or the primary debates, our councilman-elect, Justin Brennan, has told us that he supports the Right to Know Act, but also that he's willing to stand up to Bill de Blasio when it concerns issues on which they disagree. Justin, we know you're at Councilmember Bootcamp right now, 
and we hope this is something that you're paying attention to, and we're looking forward to hearing about what steps you're going to take to move the Right to Know Act forward. And with that, nativism. Which, could you just talk a little about what nativism is for a minute? Because it was even a little confusing for me how we were going to talk about this when you first brought it up. Yeah, I mean, it's big. And as we'll hear, it touches on a lot of issues. On a national level, nativism is about putting the interests of native residents over new arrivals and immigrants. But on a local level, for Bay Ridge, to me, nativism manifests as a belief that long-term residents have a more inherent authority than newer residents wherever they're from. And it gets kicked around a lot as a concept, particularly in local elections. Like two GOP polls talking about winning one for the quote old neighborhood, unquote, the day before the city council election, right? Yeah. Or when Amalia Takis campaign staffer tells Adam Baumel that he's not qualified to be an assembly candidate because he hasn't lived in the district his entire life. Or let's be fair, when Adam goes after Amalia Takis for not living in Bay Ridge, Don't start that fight, dude. Yeah, or Colleen Golden, our state senator's wife, openly calling out people who disagree with Marty Golden is probably not from the neighborhood. Or even progressives on our own side who can alienate people in meetings and forums by using the same terminology. Yeah. So the reason I thought this would be something that was worth digging into is this. I've seen this nativist streak throughout my entire life, and it bugs me. It bugs me that there are people in this community who don't want to hear your opinion unless you were born and raised here. My whole life, I've seen people shoot down other people's ideas and opinions because they aren't perceived to have roots here, that they don't know Bay Ridge intimately enough. And rather than actually figure out if someone is smart or empathetic or has ideas worth listening to, they just ask how long you've been here. Sometimes they don't even bother to ask. They instead just look at your skin. And it's always bothered me. And let me be clear, I open conversations sometimes with politicians by saying, I was born here just so I don't get shot down, just so that they'll listen to me. And it makes me sick each time I do it, because each time it's an admission that nativism exists, but also that I have the privilege to overcome it without challenging it. I'm making an active attempt to stop that. I think if we're going to be open about starting new dialogues, we need to address a problem that literally manifests itself most often in people's opening sentences. So we decided to change up our format again and bring you a series of interviews on the subject. We had the chance to talk to such an interesting group of people about it, and we ended up learning a lot about the different ways in which people see our community, how its politicians treat them in public dialogue, how words intended to build local solidarity can also be alienating, and how as much as people say Bayridge has changed, it's still got the same character and flavor as it always has. And the thing that we learned is that beneath it all, the thing that really exposes how horrible nativist rhetoric is is that everyone is here in Bay Ridge for beautiful, amazing, and shared reasons. Even the people who left, they still keep this neighborhood in their hearts. And every neighbor counts, no matter how long they've been here. We'll hear from my cousin, well, first cousin, twice removed, through my grandfather, who grew up in Bay Ridge back in the 50s and 60s, and he moved to Texas. And then we'll talk to Omar Vaid, who's running in the Democratic primary for CD11, about what it's like running for the seat from outside the district. After Omar, we're going to read a statement from our friend Lana, who emigrated here from Russia and has brought up her family here in Bay Ridge. And then we've got our friend Alan, who's going to help us dig into some of the theoretical underpinnings behind nativism, labor, solidarity, intersectionality, white supremacy. Is is that all? Probably not. So first, to start things off, my first cousin, twice removed, who grew up in Bay Ridge before moving to Texas. How are you? Hi, Jack. How are you? I'm good. Very well, thank you. So can you tell us about what you remember growing up? Uh, well, I don't remember <laughs> my birth, but, but I was born in 1944, 
at Maimonides Hospital, Mm -hmm. which back then was called Israel Zion Hospital. And I grew up and lived the entire time that I lived in Bay Ridge. Mm -hmm. I lived at 465 84th Street, which is an apartment building on 84th Street between 4th and 5th Avenues. And I left when I was 23 years old. Where'd you go to school? I went to PS 104, which is on 92nd Street and uh, Fifth Avenue, Mm -hmm. and then went to high school at Fort Hamilton High School. Most all the teachers lived in the neighborhood. And in fact, Mm -hmm. I think PS 185 is named after one of my teachers. His name was Mr. Kassenbrock. And if you go by 185, you'll think you'll see his name on that. I remember when the Verrazano Bridge was built, we fought terribly, mm-hmm. or I didn't, but my the older people fought to keep the bridge out of Bay Ridge, because when it came through, it divided the neighborhood. And mm. before that, Bay Ridge was a very much cut-off little neighborhood. You could not walk down the street without knowing every shopkeeper. Huh. Mm. We knew Mr. Phillips, who owned, uh, the, they had a fruit store. There was a fish market, I can't think of the man's name, who owned that. And then there was, between 84th and 85th Street, uh, the neighborhood toy store, which was Mr. Rosen's store, toy store. We had one Chinese restaurant, which was the Shore Road Chinese restaurant, which was on 86th Street, close to 4th Avenue on the the west side. There was an Italian restaurant named Brioni's, owned by the Brioni family. There was a place on uh, 4th Avenue between 91st, 92nd and 93rd Street called Sorrentino, which was owned by my friend mm-hmm. Gus Stavropoulos. I went to school with his kids, and they worked there. You know, Rachel, your great-grandfather's store mm-hmm. was on 5th Avenue, I think between 80th and 79th, but for instance, 3rd Avenue has changed. There was nothing on 3rd Avenue when I lived there. Oh, really? There were no restaurants. Wow. It was a dead avenue. So, but it was a wonderful place because you knew everybody. You couldn't get away with anything. I remember <laughs> coming home when I was about 13 or 14, and my mother said, when did you start smoking? And I said, no, I didn't start smoking. She says, don't tell me. Sam, Sam Maniachi, that was his name, the fish. He owned the fish store, Sam and Sons. Sam Maniachi saw you smoking. Uh-oh. And, of course, I remember Mr. Hinch, who owned Hinch's. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you either, as a kid, you hung out in front of Hinch's, and there was another uh, luncheonette called the Green Tea Room. And we would, we would hang out. That's we hung out. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I worked in the drugstore on the corner of uh, 93rd Street and 4th Avenue. And, by the way, mm-hmm. I would think, Rachel, if you were to go to the Bay Ridge Jewish Center, you might find your grand- great-grandparents' name somewhere in there. Oh, really? Oh, I might have to go take a look. Oh, oh, yes. You know, they call Bay Ridge the borough of churches. And just looking around Bay Ridge, you can tell that, because the Bay Ridge Jewish Center sits right next to a Lutheran church, and catty corner away from St. Anselm's. And we used to spend a lot of time at St. Anselm's in that empty lot, and the ministers, the brothers, would teach us how to play baseball. We all mixed together. Well, what I most miss is all the small shopkeepers, and Mm. particularly the small restaurants. And, of course, there's what used to be a soda fountain on the corner. It's now a restaurant. It was called Meyer and Bloom, B-L-O-H-M. There were Scandinavian names. You have to understand, when I lived in Bay Ridge, there was a very, very large Scandinavian population. To this day, I think they still have a parade. But there used to be the Sons of Norway, and and it was very, very large. I had many friends who whose grandparents were of Scandinavian descent. And as a matter of fact, 
there was a newspaper. They had a newspaper called, uh, see, I worked in a drugstore. I sold the newspapers, and every minority had a newspaper. The Italians had a newspaper called Il Progresso. Mm -hmm. The Scandinavians had one called Nordestiden. Mm-hmm. I can't think of the others. There were others, but those were the two I remember most particularly. There were bakeries. There was a wonderful German bakery. In fact, there was a chain in Bay Ridge and throughout Brooklyn called Ebinger's, which was wonderful. Like I said, there was a Hinch's and then on 83rd Street and 5th Avenue was Mr. Poles had a luncheonette mm-hmm. there. There were Scandinavian bakeries and German bakeries and even one kosher deli, but there was a very small Jewish population yeah. in Bay Ridge. It's always been diverse, and, and as long as it's a mom and pop, no matter where they come from, that's kind of the character, it seems. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, uh, you know, I can just remember the, the halls of my apartment house and around Christmas time, the smells of what people baked and cooked and things. It was wonderful. It was very, very nice because I lived in the same apartment house for 23 years. It was like having 60 mothers and fathers who knew (laughs) me from the time I grew up. And we all seemed to get along. Yeah. We really did. I, uh, so I have wonderful memories. And of course there was the ferries, which left from 69. Oh, we've got those back now. I commute to work on them. Oh, really? Because as kids, we would take our bicycles and for a nickel, we could put our bicycles on the ferry and ride all the way to Staten Island. And Staten Island was almost uninhabited. Oh, And oh. we would yeah, ride around Staten Island. Oh. We would go over by ourselves and spend the whole day. The only thing in Staten Island, there were three things in Staten Island. There was Silver Lake, Clove Lake, and there was Lotterette State Park. And as a matter of fact, we would go for sleepovers with the Boy Scouts at Lauderette State Park. But there was very little else. And the only way to get there was the ferries. There was no bridges. So, you know, that area has changed. My my recollection is that Bay Ridge has gotten so much more crowded than what I remember. There's no way of getting your bike to Staten Island anymore. You'd have to take it on a car over the Verrazano or downtown Manhattan and take the, the Staten Island ferry over now. Well, you would take your life in your hands. You have to understand, when yeah. we got off in Staten Island, you could ride through downtown Staten Island and not see a car. Yeah. Staten oh. Island was not built up. There was no bridge, and very few people lived out there. It was just very remote. And we would get on our bikes and go take the bike path. We could ride up to Cropsey Avenue. So where, and, where was the bike path? Because don't, I don't think we have those anymore. <laughs> well, it's the path. There were, used to be two, but it's the path that runs along the shore. Oh, along, oh okay. along the water. And you can take that all the way up to Cropsey. And at that time, uh, the, of course, the Darling Trumps built a bunch of apartments there. But at that time, there were no apartments. There was a little playland, and you could rent boats. And you could rent a rowboat and go out uh, right there. yeah. And then I think that uh, it turned into uh, Nellie Bly when I was when I was a kid. That's that was exactly. Nellie Bly Park. Nellie Bly. Huh. That was the name of it. Nellie Bly. Nice. We would rent rowboats, and one day we almost got caught. We almost got caught and carried out to the ocean. Oh no! <laughs> well, because what you would do, you know, it was a far different time. You would leave your bike there as security, and they didn't care how old you were. And I don't think we were any more than fourteen years old. And some of us had never been in a rowboat, but we decided to rent a rowboat. And we almost never made it Just back to Out shore. onto the harbor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys got around as kids. 
hanging out on like every corner. Well, but we did. You knew every nook and cranny in Bay Ridge. You knew how to get around. And of course, I had a paper out when I was 10 years old. By the way, I lived on 84th Street and would walk to PS 104. Nobody took kids to school by car. So we would walk there and you went to school until 12 and walked home. Mm -hmm. And at one o'clock, you were back at school. And you stayed till three o'clock. You went home for lunch. Yes, absolutely. Unless I could talk my mother into letting me eat at Hinch's, which was a big deal. <laughs> yeah, they don't let you out of the building now. <laughs> yeah, isn't that remarkable? Because we had free range. I mean, there's a wonderful hill that goes from Third Avenue down Ridge Boulevard, 75th Street. Mm -hmm. It used to be cobblestone, but it's steep. And we used to take our bikes and we'd load as many kids as we could on one bike, <laughs> knowing, knowing the more kids we had, the faster the bike went. And we would come down the hill. <laughs> how, how many helmets did you guys have? Uh, no, no, who had a helmet? We didn't have helmets. Nobody had. We played in the middle of the street. When you lived in the apartment yeah. house, you'd come out and suddenly somebody had skates on. And then every kid had skates. <laughs> or we'd play stickball in the middle of the street, which was most dangerous. We'd play a three-sewer ball. The first sewer was home. The second sewer was second base. And the third sewer was out. So if you <laughs> hit a three-sewer ball, that was a home run. There you go. And you had to be careful because Third Sewell got close to Fifth Avenue. So if you were going after a ball, you had to dodge your traffic. <laughs> oh, jeez. You know, and none of us ever got hit by a car. You know, the people would complain about us because we'd make so much noise. Right, right. So when the cops would come, the kid who played closest to Fifth Avenue would yell, cops, and we ditched our bats because they'd confiscate our bats. Which were just, by the way, they were not bats, of course. <laughs> they were broomsticks. Oh, yeah. When, when we were growing up, the street was no longer a good place to play. Number one, because of the cars. And two, the, the, there were so many parked cars. You only had a right. couple of feet, really, in the street to play with. Do, do they still put up um, poles and decorations down Fifth Avenue? Yeah, for Christmas and for Halloween now and for New Year's, um, all of the uh, all of the street lamps have something strung across them for all the well, holidays. Well, they used to use right. They used to have big poles that would put up and stretch across Fifth Avenue from Eighty oh, Sixth wow. Street all the way down. That would they would put them up every year. And on Halloween, the kids used to do destructive things, knock over <laughs> trash cans yeah. and things. And all the schools got together and said, we're not going to do this anymore. What we're going to have is a competition. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they do this still, where kids would draw Halloween pictures. And if your picture was good enough, you got to draw it on the window Windows. of a store on 86th Street. I won that in um, eighth grade. There you are. St it's still going on. <laughs> and you never got into any trouble. That's nice to know. And, and now no kids make any trouble at all <laughs> in the neighborhood. <laughs> but, you know, as I said, the difference is we had the run of the neighborhood. You leave the house in the morning, and if you showed up for dinner, your mother knew you were okay. And when I was in the seventh grade uh, at 104, I would get on the train and go into Manhattan. Uh, but, you know, that was not unexpected. You At that age, you were expected to be able to find your way around the city. My father simply said, you know, don't talk to any strangers. Know where you're going. And, and they expected you to be able to do that. You understand, my, my wife is probably listening in. She figures someday I'm going to wind up back in Bay Ridge because of the way I talk after, about it. Af after after <laughs> all this time, why do you still want to come back? <laughs> oh, I don't. 
I have, I, I, I don't. Michelle and I just don't, thinks you know, so. <laughs> I'm going to tell you, there is something very special about living in Texas. It's just laid back compared, and, and the people are, are very pleasant. It's a fabulous place to live. When I go back, I like to walk around yeah. to the places I remember. It's, I'm, I'm glad you told me to move here. I've, en- I've enjoyed my time here, and I'm looking forward to spending well, more time it, here. it still is a very nice neighborhood. Yeah. It really is. And unlike other neighborhoods, it hasn't gone to seed. Bay Ridge mm-hmm. never went through that. Yeah, yeah. The ethnicity of Bay Ridge has changed, but the area itself has never gone downhill. All right. Well, I, I guess we will let you go. Thank you again so much. I'm really glad we got a chance to talk. Thank you for calling. I've enjoyed talking about one of my favorite subjects. Good night. Okay, good night. Thanks again, Jack. We really appreciated your taking the time to share all of that with us and our listeners. And I know we sort of said it already, but you know what stands out to me? What's that, Dan? Jack and I never set foot in the same Bay Ridge. He left decades before I was born. But across the gulf of time, he was talking to me about pretty much the same neighborhood I grew up in and the same neighborhood I see today. You two were literally finishing each other's sentences a couple of times there. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, Hinches is Stewart's now, but knowing the people who own the mom and pops near you, I knew Mr. Han and then Mondo around the corner, my shopkeepers. And a big theme of Jack's was how everyone had a passion for the neighborhood, how everyone got along, how each new arrival brought something new to the table. Which is the perfect lead-in for our next guest. Hi to our guest, uh, Omar Vaid, who's running for Thank Congress you. in CD11. Yeah. Thank you for <laughs> having for me. Coming. And uh, I'm running for Congress here in New York 11th District, Bay Ridge, Staten Island, and South Brooklyn as a whole. It's unusual because I'm a Muslim American, and I'm a second generation union worker, and I'm a non-politician. I'm just a regular guy who's standing up in the time uh, when it's most needed. Where are you from? Yeah, that's that's the thing. Like we're talking about nativism, and Identity. the worst thing about nativism is asking as as a stand-in for who are you and what do you stand for is where were you born? Where did you go to school? Like for, in, for for my childhood, that was I remember being eight years old and someone walking up and saying, "Where are you from?" And I never. It took me so long to realize it's that they wanted to know that my family was from India. And that was like mind boggling because I would say, well, I'm from Michigan or <laughs> Illinois. And they'd go, no, where are you from? And I go, um, Michigan. And they go, well, no. And then I was, my, my parents go, India. And I go, oh, okay. I get it. Where are my parents? I yeah. should say, where are your parents from? It's, it's just, you know, why do you look the way you do? And so, you know, you, you become comfortable with that, you know, because it's, it's like, okay, well, I am the only Indian kid in the suburban Chicago school. I find, I, and I think it's off, often very innocent, the nativism thing, you know, you're proud that your roots are so deep, and I respect that. But the problem is when you have someone like Steve Bannon, who believes nativism is, can be twisted into this thing for political purpose to say, that that Mexican walking by, well, I mean, does he belong here? Where is he from? And then it, it to me, that becomes racial profiling. Is it is it really so difficult to think that increase in hate might increase hate crimes? Like, why is that so complicated? I listened to the debate, you know, and it's, I noticed sometimes people, the first thing they say when they speak is, I was born and my daddy was born. And I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like, I don't care where you were born. Tell me what you're going to do for us. Yeah. 
I were you like born in a taxi cab in the dead center of the district? <laughs> what or, hospital? Yeah. I don't like that hospital. <laughs> which room in the hospital? Which nurse spanked you? I want to know. Like, no, but favoritism too. It's that to tell me you were born somewhere. Well, how do I know that you're not taking favoritism to someone you grew up with mm. and not the person on the other side of town that you mm. didn't know so well? So sometimes the outsider is just like, hey, I'm here for everybody. I thought Justin did a great job in that yeah. debate. And I, I noticed that the other side, it was a lot of, again, identity politics. I loved there was um, this thing that I think Capano was talking about how um, we spend $27 million to protect illegal immigrants oh God, um, in our sanctuary so city. And that... If we just didn't spend that money, mm. we could use it to build new schools, to yeah. build more senior housing, and to pay cops. And I just wanted to be like, you do know that $27 million out of the city budget of $8.8 billion is a, drop is in the a drop in the... Give context, well, when, you doof. When John was at, right after that, directly after that, when John was asked a question about his thoughts on, on immigration, yeah. his response was, oh, well, I'm against hate crimes. And it's like, whoa, like, because maybe it was a knee jerk. Because he knows that this whole scapegoating thing causes hate crimes. And maybe that was a knee jerk that, well, I'm against hate crimes. And it's like, what was that? Because in Staten Island, just this a couple yeah. of days ago, a woman, yeah. a Jewish woman woke up and she had a swastika painted oh on God. by her, by a neighbor. Yeah. And then uh, a couple of days before that, a, a black family on their back um, of their car got, yeah, the a racist uh, thing. Screed on. Yeah. And, and so this is a time when we're like the, you know, the Anti-Defamation League, we're all saying there's a there's an increase. Mm -hmm. And then these people drum beating this scapegoating, they just look past that because they don't have anything really to offer you of substance. Well, and what I thought was so amazing about that um, thing the other day was that woman, I guess, then turned around and said, don't wash it off. I want people to see it. Just keep it up. I yeah. thought that was so, I mean, like, th think about think about being in that neighborhood yeah. and, driving, and to, driving every day, driving your kids to school and seeing this big swastika on and and for this woman to say, I want people to see yeah. what our quote unquote neighbor mm -hmm. thought was appropriate. I was like deeply saddened that the New York Times wrote a piece uh, about Staten Island that with the uptick in hate crimes, you know, and hate speech uh, after Trump's election, a lot of Muslim families started putting their kids in private schools. Yeah. And I, hmm. I was like so like devastated by that because what if that was me? That was I was six years old. I I mean, I fought against my kid. My parents wanted to put me in one. and I fought so hard against yeah. it. They're like, well, he wants to go to his his public school. And so to me, it's like, don't you guys see that you're also putting who you call the other, you're making them into the other. And, yes. and, and in, in, I think in Europe, in France, I think that there's a thing sometimes that develops with Algerians that they start to feel like we're not welcome, you know, in, a, in some sense. And then they do grow up having problems. It would be better if a parent in Staten Island who's Muslim didn't feel their kids were in danger yeah. with other kids or something. And I and it's, I just hope that the parents who sit around watching Fox News, I wish they stopped watching Fox News, yeah. um, singling out, you know, uh, Muslims because of the Middle East, trying to divide people up for the purpose of political gain. And I think it's to cover up that you don't really have anything to offer people economically with health insurance or with their job or... So for me, it's really deeply troubling when someone keeps telling me where they were born and not what they're going to do for me. To speak of Staten Island, on the South Shore, 
Um, like I could say one of our constituents, Jill, suffers from a two-hour commute each way to Manhattan. Jeez. And that's like unacceptable to me. Yeah. And so I'm not going to say, oh, well, that's just the way it is because that's that's what I'm used to. And I'm mm. from Staten Island and I, I grew up with this. And that's just the way it should be because I'm not from Staten Island. And I'll say that is unacceptable. If elected to Congress, it will be my first priority to bring that down to a one-hour commute each way. And I'm willing to resign if I can't make that happen. Whoa, because you're on, you're on like, the record. He's I'm on the record a, I am, for I'm that. on the record for saying that I will make it a one-hour commute because I can't say that that's normal, that yeah. it takes the same time to get from Philly to Penn Station as from the South Shore of Staten Island, and you pay local New York City taxes. And so to me, I like I was attracted to Bay Ridge um, as a teenager, and I, when, I, when I visited uh, London, I had a shawarma for the first time mm-hmm. in Edgware Road, and I was like, my Love God, it, it was, be- it. It, and then when I moved to New York, the food, and I, I remember <laughs> on Google finding out mm-hmm. the best shawarma was in uh, Bay Ridge, and I, I came out to find this, you know, Lebanese shawarma, and then I was like, God, there's this Italian place, Penny Antico, and I'm like, my God, I've never had fig and walnut bread and like the stuff, you know, like the yeah. the real, like the real, like, you know, the ricotta cheesecake and like, like the things I'm like so passionate about Italian, Italian is my absolute favorite food. And um, and so I was like, God, I have shawarmas and I have Penny Antico and all these Italian places. I'm like, I'm going to move to Bay Ridge because the food I was, you know, as a bachelor at the time, I didn't cook. OK, Monday night, I'll eat with the two, the Turkish brothers who just op- these immigrants who just yeah. open a, a place and have home bread and Adana kebab. Then tomorrow night, I'll have my shawarma on Fifth Ave. And the next night, you know, I'll have I'll have Italian. So for me, it was like the family store and to walk in these places. And I and so for me, it wasn't where I was born. It's what I was passionate about from learning from my travel to, you know, to England. And, you know, just the, the passion of this neighborhood being beautiful drew me. And so, so do you want someone who shows off about where they're born or whatever, or someone who's telling you, that they found you out of passion, mm. out of love, mm-hmm. and out of unity, and not, and, and also my family's Indian, so it's not like there's some huge Indian community here. It's just that I was inspired. How long does it take, for example, like for a person who's interested, passionate, has intelligence, and has the ability to connect disparate experiences together? Well, and the Elliotine campaign ran into some pushback on that, didn't they? Because they had volunteers coming knocking doors from outside from the of the DSA. They, they, and oh no, these oh, uh, no, socialists yeah. could never possibly be people. And by the way, like the DSA had like a South Brooklyn chapter. Yeah. The people who invited the more DSA people who live here, it's not like they like reached out to like some foreign entity that like, yeah. We're, we're busing volunteers in from those, Ohio. A lot of those <laughs> folks had beliefs that were shared by the people whose doors they were knocking on. Just because they didn't live here doesn't mean you can't connect. And some people don't have the opportunity to live in a place that they care about. I'd say like most of the people that emigrate to the United States and want to go through the insane procedures we put them through, those people who aren't here yet probably care a lot more about mm. this district than some of the people who currently live here. Well, I mean, if it just and broadly, nationally speaking, you know, if have anybody ever tried to take the citizenship test? Yeah, the one who, like my father and my mother had to go through that test. Yeah. And again, it's like, yeah, like you had to, you know, you had to, it was this moment you where don't you- don't want that. Yeah, you weren't born with this. It was a moment where you- earned it mm-hmm. and you know you never forget that moment yeah and it, it's a similar moment to when i i held up a hand and gave a pledge to my union mm-hmm. i had to give this you know this and so i always tell people when they say something into union i say whoa i took an oath i took an oath to my union you know 
And but yeah, to be born into something, you never took an oath. One of the cool things on unions is unions had their strength in in mobility, spreading mm -hmm. ideas. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Like the, the union people were the carpetbaggers, uh, IWW, Industrial Workers of the World, Wobblies, going into disadvantaged neighborhoods, um, disadvantaged rural like mm. farming communities, organizing and offering people. offering representation. Yes. So let me tell you about in another town what we did and what we can do. And it's this big risk you're taking. You're sticking your neck out to join this union and to start this union. Yeah, it's absolutely true. It's to plant seeds for like our international. I'm a, a member of IATSE, the stagehand union or the mechanics union. All, all over the country, there are chapters like in the Teamsters. And then um, then unions help other unions um, like CWA 1102 in Staten Island is uh, is helping with other initiatives. It spreads. Under one CWA, you have the Verizon communications workers, but then you also have the people who work at the Easy Pass. And it's you would think that they're not connected, but it doesn't matter. Like Teamsters have represented school teachers. Right. You know, and it you know, it's about, you know, really great contract negotiating. And that that is something from the past that we do need to look back to is that we used to be a union country in our golden age. And that was very anti-nativist. That was connecting with people on issues. Like you said, it, it's about what your platform is, what's your plank. I don't care where you grew up. It's not about any of this, about what we look like, where we're born. It's that we want Medicare for all. We want the healthcare crisis to end. You know, we want those national cost reductions to reduce um, what unions have to fight for every time they, they go for a contract, which is healthcare costs. We want that to go to wage increases and pension increases. We want workers' rights. We want to reduce corporate influence. I don't take corporate money. I won't take a free sandwich from a corporation, from a corporate lobbyist. And yeah, we want, um, we, yeah, we want things that are, that, you know, we want, you know, great jobs. We want better transportation. We don't want a wall, you know, to divide us from Mexico. Right underneath um, Owl's Head Park is the tunnel that was supposed to go hmm. to connect the subway to Staten Island. Um, they they never did it because uh, Robert Moses liked bridges and got toll mm. money from the bridges, and he didn't get any money if you had the MTA. Just being able to quickly transfer people to Staten Island, that was not in anyone's interest. And you know, I'm glad you brought up Robert Moses because one of the things that I think encourages nativism in Bay Ridge specifically is the fact that we're belted off from mm -hmm. the rest of yeah, Brooklyn. And that was belted yeah. off. Yeah, and, and that was very intentional, and that was done to keep mm. you know other communities from, mm -hmm. quote-unquote, encroaching. Yeah, that's true. Um, so thanks, Robert Moses. <laughs> yeah, uh, we definitely have kind of, we kind of use that that um, that thing as like a little moat. And yeah. it's, it's one of the reasons that, you know, you live on the edge of the district. Um, people on the other side of that highway from you might as well be like 30 or 40 blocks yeah. away. Yeah. No, so, I mean, you know, for example, Michael Grimm and Dan Donovan both support the wall. Donovan voted for it. Grimm is, Grimm actually, I think, said uh, dreamers could be used as a great bargaining chip for a wall. Oh, God. And it's like a wall that we don't want, we don't need, that is like super, just wasteful spending. And But to use Bannon's, you know, thing and to use nativism to put this on Mexico and Mexicans in Staten Island. That how is that relevant to what we pay our tax money for and what we what we need here at home, and but to for that to be effective to some group of people. So for me, it's to say, if visually, if you want to judge a book by its cover, it's not me. But if you want to look at what's inside this book, I'm offering you some really great things for our community here, 
and for everyone. Yeah, I mean, thank you so much for coming, Omar. Thank it's been really great. And, and so vote for me in June in the primary, and uh, soon we'll have an office in Bay Ridge, woo-hoo, and you woo. can walk in and say hi and hang out, and I'll have coffee and I'll have cookies. Nice, nice. Oh, <laughs> we'll hold ta- you to that. Taking a page from Justin's <laughs> book <laughs> as a campaign pledge. There will be cookies. <laughs> Thanks so much, Omar, for joining us. If you'd like to hear more, we'll be posting a longer cut of our interview with Omar in a future episode. Or you could check out omarvaid.com. That's V-A-I-D. We'll be doing more episodes introducing you to the Democrats lining up to face Dan Donovan. And the, what is it, eight Democratic challengers in the primary? We'll try to get as many of them into the studio as possible. Speaking of special editions, we're going to start working on an archive of community audio. We've already presented some of the community's higher profile events, like the debates and the coffee clatches, but we're also going to start building an archive of smaller events, like community board meetings and educational information. We're going to set it up so it doesn't clutter up your podcast feed, and we'll get more information on the website as that goes. But yeah, Dan, like, why don't you talk a little bit about Omar and you know what you thought of what he had to say? Yeah, I mean, people who are here are almost always here for the right reasons. I was really interested hearing Omar talk about like his foodie Mm. thing about that's why he wanted to come to the neighborhood. And it doesn't matter if it's been a day or a year. I think we can learn a lot about what we share with people based on what they see in Bay Ridge. Um, Plus, when he was talking about unions, I I think we always need to remember that good ideas don't necessarily come from within. They can be brought in by an outsider who's empathetic, smart, and listens. But when people start using nativism to shut down the conversation, or even when people use it as shorthand, the effects can be really chilling. We're going to read a comment from our friend of the podcast, Lana, now that touches on that. For me, nativism feels threatening because there's always this implication that immigrants are inferior and belong here less. Like, it doesn't matter that I spent 22 years here. I don't have a large extended family, and I feel like I can't lay claim to the neighborhood or the country. When I criticize the U.S., I'm commonly told to go back to Russia. I hate Russia. I do not hate the U.S. I want to make it better. I also resent any attempts to divide immigrants into good ones and bad ones. My family isn't, quote, good. We were lucky. If I was growing up in a neighborhood filled with gangs, I would probably risk my life to get my child to a safer area. And by the way, in Central America, problems were actually caused by U.S. interference, and then deporting gang members. Gangs were first formed here. But unfortunately, not all immigrants see it this way, and it's definitely an attempt by documented immigrants, especially white documented immigrants, to put themselves higher up on the quote-unquote ladder, which I find personally appalling. I feel like in the 90s, most people felt welcoming to me and my family, and only very few kids would make comments like that. Of course, my perspective is that of a white immigrant, But I didn't perceive those kids to be representative of Americans as a whole. They were frequently kids from troubled backgrounds. But now this sentiment is coming from well-off, comfortable people. I've also had people complain about immigrants directly to me, but then telling me in consolation that, quote, I'm a good one, that I'm useful and that others are not. I do think that they feel less threatened by white European immigrants because they don't see them as changing the American landscape so they would rather explicitly exclude me from being an immigrant. Or maybe that's what they say to my face, who knows. I always wonder how these well-off people can't see all the work immigrants do and are doing to make this city run. If you look around, you see all these immigrants working hard. I walk by the shore sometimes, and I saw all these John Quaglione signs on people's lawns. But then I see immigrants working on those lawns, hanging up Christmas decorations, cleaning, etc., 
But a lot of people only see immigrants committing crimes, or considering their mere existence here a crime. I mean, on some level, nativism is probably natural, but I think Fox News has been ramping it up for years. And they don't do it accidentally. My significant other, he's from El Salvador, and he watches Fox News and says how they're constantly talking about Central American gangs. Fear's a powerful thing. Dan Donovan really amped that up lately, too, and John Quaglione, and I'm certain it's a strategy, not an accident. Every politician in the last city council election made it a point to say, quote, I was born here. When we introduce ourselves to a crowd, we send all these signals to bond with people who are like us, but that alienates people who aren't like us. The fear-mongering of, quote, illegal immigration also transfers to illegal conversions. I absolutely connect with the whole worry about illegal conversions being a fear of immigrants. I mean, frankly, most of the people in Bay Ridge aren't even impacted by illegal home conversions, even in terms of school overcrowding. These issues are more common in Diker Heights. So why do these guys have tables set up in Bay Ridge at every public event? They know it's a non-issue to most Bay Ridge residents, so they go out of their way to make it an issue. And by the way, for school overcrowding, I went to Fort Hamilton in the 90s, and there were close to 5,000 students there. The real problem is lack of money to schools. But some politicians' calls to have schools report the names of children where and where they live is absolutely horrendous. It can put these kids in real danger. People might even start pulling their kids out of school. Immigrant communities do not trust the authorities with information collected. The government doesn't need addresses to count how many kids are in a school. If there are 5,000 kids, then funds are needed for 5,000 kids. The research shows that undocumented immigrants pay taxes. They bring in more money than they take out, so just fund the schools. I know an undocumented immigrant who refused to get medical attention. She's 70 and worked as a nanny for the past 17 years. She didn't trust the city, so she didn't get an IDNYC card and told me that all her undocumented friends who got the ID are now terrified. That's not even discussing the lowest common denominator arguing point, safety. I do not buy that concerns about immigrants are driven by concerns about safety. When we point out safety concerns that stem from things people, primarily white people, do like drive recklessly, Republicans are dead silent. When we point out the number of white men that rape women on campus, silence. The primary driver is still xenophobia. At my former employer, we had a counterterrorism specialist come in to discuss the ways in which to keep New York City safe from terrorism originating abroad. The key aspect of that was connecting to Muslim communities, not ostracizing them. So if someone is genuinely worried about safety, they would want to make everyone feel welcome. If white men feel alienated enough that they decide to commit acts of terrorism, it wouldn't be surprising to me if some men in an ostracized community would be susceptible. But when I tried to point that out, it was an utter failure, because it's not about safety. It's racism. Nativists act as though a crime committed by a, quote, outsider is an aggravated version of that crime. And innocent until proven guilty doesn't apply. It's horrendous. On Bay Ridge Parents' Facebook group, People take photos of kids just hanging out and post them like it's a crime. In the park where I go to, I see these kids all the time, and yes, they smoke pot sometimes, but who hasn't? Plus, they move away to some distant corner of the park. I think that when some problems seem cultural, they're more actually present in all cultures, such as the oppression of women. We don't notice it in ours because it seems the norm. For some people, the norm is like a buddy who will get a girl drunk so she sleeps with him. It doesn't seem like rape or coercion or predatory behavior because it's the norm. 
But if it happens in another culture, it's different. And even then, we make excuses for oppressive behavior in societies more similar to ours. We don't decry oppression of women in Catholic Latin America as much as we do in the Muslim Middle East. And most of the problems people blame on immigrants are a result of poverty and having no voice in government or power. They think poorer neighborhoods are dirtier because people living there are dirtier, not because they have fewer cleanup resources. And as for tribalism, I don't think that we're even doing a good job communicating with Latinos and Muslims. The thing is, we can't expect this to happen organically. I think that it would require all of us to step out of our comfort zone and go to other places even though we'll feel uncomfortable there, and that it'll take time to connect with people. Different cultures have slightly different ways of interacting, slightly different cultural norms, and that can make a person feel very out of place. Also, white people aren't used to being outsiders. But I think that whenever possible, an effort must be spent making civic institutions representative of our country, i.e. when members are not self-selected. Only the most confident Muslim mother will come to a full room of white women who are complaining about those kids smoking pot and want to come back again. These spaces were historically white and full of non-immigrants, and real effort has to be spent to ensure that immigrants, particularly non-white ones, are not excluded or used as props. I think it's also important to acknowledge these feelings in ourselves. I think it's also important to acknowledge these feelings in ourselves. I try to make an effort to strike up conversations with people from other cultures that I encounter in my daily life. The truth is, is it easier for me to relate to white, liberal, but sometimes not mothers? Yeah. If we try to fix racism as a problem that exists only in other people, we underestimate the scope of the problem and are limiting our own level of responsibility. The same goes for nativism. I think it's important for me to acknowledge when I myself have those feelings. Today I told my parents the gist of a conversation I had regarding nativism and the immigrant experience, and I overheard my father saying to my mother as I was walking my son down the hall, quote, If you're an immigrant and became a citizen, you better just keep quiet and not make waves. You came here. Just be thankful for what you've got. My father is a libertarian and all about honoring and being grateful to Western and white culture. I think that hurt more than people telling me, go back to Russia, because it's the person who brought me here, acknowledging that I have no right in real participation. I just hope that I understand the principles that this country was founded upon, equality and acceptance, better than he does. Wow. Just, wow. Yeah, so much of that really exposes how chilling nativist rhetoric can be, even when it's somewhat attenuated by a good-bad dichotomy. Well, and also um, what she was saying about immigrants not feeling like they have the right to do something. And when you keep telling somebody, like, you haven't lived here, you don't have the right to say something, they're going to internalize that, and that's going to affect the course of public discourse negatively. And they might never come back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, after the city council race, somebody from Fight Back Bay Ridge, I think it was Mallory pointed out that the white vote in District 43 is split pretty much 50-50. Um, and Lana talked a little bit in her statement about the racism inherent in nativism. And given that divide in how the district voted and how close the election was, those electeds who want to keep getting elected, and this goes back to the importance of high voter turnout, need to stop dog whistling and stop scapegoating and start taking the concerns and needs of all of our neighbors seriously. Demographics are changing, and as we've already heard from Jack earlier, that's not something new. No, but the responses to it, the nativist rhetoric, it's been ramping up lately. And to be fair, it's always been there. We shouldn't let our nostalgia hide that. Bay Ridge may have always been diverse, a melting pot, 
but it's also been a microcosm of nativist feelings that have played out on a national and ideological level. To dig into that, we spoke with our friend Alan. Buckle up, folks. It's time for the deep dive into nativism, intersectionality, the global struggle of the worker, and how those and other factors come to bear when we're talking about race and heritage-based divides in our community. Woo! So, Alan's with us today to talk about nativism in Bay Ridge. Um, where should we begin? There's a lot of ground to cover here. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm from California originally. I'm from the San Francisco Bay Area, the East Bay, the Berkeley, Oakland Hills. And uh, my, my parents are from the East Coast. My mother was from Long Island. My uh, father's from Boston. So I was a West Coast kid raised by East Coast parents, which <laughs> made for me using very strange idioms that my friends at school didn't understand. <laughs> Um, my, the, the year I spent in Australia didn't help either that, um, that also screwed things up, um, and when I was seven. So everything was kind of a bit of a jumble, but as I got older, I became much more of a Californian by, uh, habit and, uh, inclination, which drove my mother bananas. So I've, uh, lived off and on on the East coast. I, I lived in Maine. So now, now I found myself in New York and I moved here in 2013, for grad school, I, I originally lived in in Williamsburg, the dreaded <laughs> hipster enclave of Williamsburg, where I paid way too much. The rumors are true, and then uh, came down to Bay Ridge uh, just in May. So so Bay Ridge is uh, the second place I've lived in Brooklyn, and uh, you know I'm, I uh, took me a little while to get used to New York, but now I love it. And let, let's let's you know real talk, Williamsburg or Bay Ridge? They both have their advantages. I mean. <laughs> No, the, the the advantage of Williamsburg is that at any point you can go out and do a million different things. And, you know, when living on the L, I was 30 minutes from Manhattan. Um, the, the downside is that uh, it's way too expensive. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm spending half on wow. rent what I spent wow. over there. Yeah. And your so, apartment's awesome. So <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, it's nice. And we're getting overcharged for it over here. So, um, yeah, you do the math. But... Um, yeah, so it, it's it's very different. It's also nice to be in Bay Ridge. It's it's much greener. It's quieter. It's got these things called trees. They they have leaves <laughs> on them. I really like them. I grew up around them yeah. all the time. Um, and there's less trash on the street because Williamsburg is a garbage dump. And um, I never got. I'm I'm never gonna get used to that. Um, never, never, never. You know, when you guys were like, "Hey, let's talk about nativism," my first thought was. Um, Oh, you mean how they tell people to go away? That was my first thought and kind of the way that in our society, in American society, we have a, a constantly moving target, a morphing target of we're great and the newcomers uh, can't measure up for whatever weird constructed reasons that are put but into people's heads. I don't think that's that's not just a here thing. I don't think no. that's even just an America. No, thing. no, that's, like, that's literally yeah. everywhere in the world. Yeah, that, that's a human thing. And I think it has a lot to do with just a resistance to change. Mm. So when I walk around here as a 30-something white male, I, I blend in until people start asking me questions or kind of engage with me in any way, and then they know immediately I'm not from here. And, you know, I'm, I'm here with, with my partner, and uh, she's my passport. Mm. You know, I've literally walked into restaurants in Bay Ridge by myself yeah. and been like, I'm not eating here and just turned and walked out because I'm just looking around. And I'm like, no, they don't they don't really they don't really want me here. OK, fair enough. I mean, it, it, it's not racist. I mean, I'm not suffering in that sort of way. That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm just saying that there is a there is a are you part of the club? Are you part of the tribe? Or, and I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, and I think. The, the teen that what I feel on it is just the teeniest, teeniest little bit compared to, you know, people who've moved here from Egypt mm -hmm. or the Philippines or, you know, a place where they stand out a lot more than I do. 
and that goes to the whole thing of like, who's your neighbor? And, and here in Bay Ridge, like, you know, we live at opposite ends of the neighborhood, Alan. Um, okay. But I would still think of you as, you know, you're in Bay Ridge, you're a neighbor, Dan, you're my neighbor. Like, do we think of people in Sunset Park as our neighbors in Diker Heights and, you know, Bath Beach, the Bronx? Like, we're all part of the same system. And yet we're kind of pit against each other fighting over, you know, the last cookie that got left on the table. Right. I mean, this this gets right into the heart of, of the capitalist system. How historically resistance movements have been stripped and destroyed largely through pitting one group against another. You know, so when I think about Bay Ridge, when I, I, I think about the Bronx, when I think about New York, I think about Montana. Uh, when I think about uh, the United States, I think about South Africa. And and I think this, this comes up to the two larger isms that begin with I, which is internationalism. And, uh, oh, wait, intersectionality does not be end with <laughs> it, ism. Um, but these, these are two, they both start with I. Uh, they're not without their flaws. I mean, uh, you know, never, never not be critical. Can, can we just pause for a second? Yeah. I don't know if all of our listeners are familiar with the term intersectionality. Um, but, but if you can, you know, you had a really good explanation for that the other day, I think. Um, yeah, oh, I don't have my notes from the other day. Um, no, inter intersectionality, as I've uh, learned about it, which is mostly through Angela Davis, is where a single issue intersects with another issue. Um, a really great example would be prison reform, right? Prison reform is not only about crime. Right. It's also about policing. It's also about racism. It's also about gender. It also gets into sexuality when you think about how trans women, especially trans women of color, are treated within the criminal justice system. Right. It gets into economics when we get into a questions of surplus human beings and how we right. have two million people behind bars who's disposable who who's are disposable right and who are often used right they had convicts in California who were let out on work release to fight the forest fires and they were paid two dollars a day it was it was like two or five it was it was it, it was, was ridiculous it was not enough for a latte no it's slave labor the point is is that these these struggles are connected and that is the essence of of both um intersectionality which is to see the linkage the connective tissue and to also just express the solidarity of people who are struggling so in other words i have every sympathy for everyone in bay ridge you know whether they agree with my politics or not who who are struggling um and that's actually at this point the majority of the country Talking about nativism, nativism specifically in terms of like our elected officials who will walk into a room and what's the first thing they usually say to introduce themselves right, is, right. I've, I was born here. I went or, to school here. I've lived here my whole life. Is there another thing they could be saying? Does it reinforce nativism? Does it ignore the fact that Bay Ridge isn't one thing? Just on the walk over to, to this place, you know, I walked through a part of Bay Ridge I had never been before and I'd seen buildings I've never seen before and, and architectural styles that I'd kind of seen elsewhere a little bit, but not exactly. You know, I'm talking about the row houses. Yeah, yeah. And, and that kind of goes to the point that different sub-neighborhoods within Bay Ridge mm -hmm. and there are so many different experiences people can have within Bay Ridge. Like, is it an inherent dodge to yeah. just kind of be like, I'm going to say this so that I don't have to define who I'm listening to, who I empathize with, who I actually consider my constituency? 
fill that in on your own when I say born here. I don't think it's even veiled. I think it's it's um, specifically pandering to the white and specifically the reactionary white community here. Um, so I, I think I think the whole thing is just riddled with um, race baiting and um, basically xenophobic uh, terror tactics. Yeah, and you'll get politicians who say, oh, whoa, 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 that's, that's, that's not what I mean. But this goes right into how racism has changed. Um, you know, Michelle Alexander wrote an excellent book, um, The New Jim Crow. Uh, she wrote it several years ago, and if you know anyone listening hasn't read it, I suggest that you do. Uh, run, do not walk to your nearest bookstore. It, it takes a good long look at how racial policies have changed in the U.S., and now they have morphed uh, very silently but very effectively into different language. Um, you know, the, the Clinton-era crime bill is an excellent example of what, what really began mass incarceration, and uh, it, it's completely racist. But it, it doesn't look racist on paper, mm-hmm. yeah, yet yeah. you have to take a look at the system within the system. And, and that's kind of where I was coming from on the on the the introductions as pandering and, and saying, you know, I'm I'm white like you. I share the same values as you do. I am also worried about, you know, insert racial uh, slur here, here and here. And I think that's all implicit in that kind of introduction, because that's how racism has changed in America. And unfortunately, we've simplified racism. We've simplified it so much over the past well, the entire experience of the United States, that we can't talk about it effectively. Well, and in some ways, I mean, even talking about, you know, quote, nativism, unquote, like, that's not necessarily something that belongs to one side or the other. Like, how many of those debates, those horrible primary debates, where there was basically the same people showing up as at at the uh, Zavarian debate, were on Nancy Tong for you don't live in the district. You she lived like what two blocks yeah. outside the border. A lot of people were like, oh she she obviously can't be a serious candidate. What serious candidate would dare to live yeah. outside the district? So so this to me gets to the kind of the heart of of a lot of the issue, which is that um, you know, the th- this is happening a lot more on the right than on the left, though it does happen on the left too at different times in, in, in history. Yeah which is the idea that what we're going to do is we're going to fragment the issues. Right. Uh, we're going we're gonna to put them out into a mist where nothing connects to anything else, and that way we can barrel down and focus on one of them and use that as a rallying cry, and we don't have to worry about anything else. And we can ignore the intersectional issues. We, we can ignore everything but where Nancy Tong lives. I mean, personally, I don't, I don't care. Um, I don't care that... Um, Quaglione went to Severian. Just like I don't care that J- Justin is is a vegetarian or was in a, a metal band. I, I don't care. What I'm interested in is what are your policies? Mm-hmm. What do you bring to the table in terms of leadership and vision? And what are you interested in doing in those four years if elected? And I feel like the utilization of, of nativist tactics to kind of spearhead break up and then disqualify, right? They were attempting to disqualify Nancy based on her geographic location. For why? Because they couldn't stand up and say, we're not electing you, you're Chinese. But we don't live in the world anymore where where a candidate can stand up and say, you know, I'm anti-Chinese. 
Yeah, right? We used have, to have right. we used to have those. Was, I mean, it was go, shocking to me at the debate the other night when when they were talking about illegal home conversion. Somebody in the audience actually said, "Yes, yeah, yeah, no, 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 just shocking." Exactly. So the audience can say it. The politicians can't. Right. Right. But they can say stuff that gets the point across. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, you go back a hundred years to um, California to San Francisco. Well, maybe hundred and fifty years. Maybe maybe just hundred and twenty years. Hundred years. And you know, you you had people who ran on an anti-Chinese immigration yeah. ticket because yeah, I mean, you had the Chinese Exclusion Act, right? Like, I mean, it, it, it right exactly like like and so, it didn't just exclude China. I mean, it excluded in, in entire Asian countries. It right. limited down um, Greeks to a hundred. It limited Italians to about three hundred or so right. a year. The Muslim ban. Like, of our think great about Bay past. Ridge, and it limited. It North. is. You want to talk about where the Norwegians went in Bay Ridge? It was a 1920s ban. You know, you you've got to look again to bring it back to Michelle Alexander. You've got to look within not only what the system says it does, but what the system actually does. Right. When the rubber meets the road, what happens? And it's one of the best ways to deconstruct. In this case, kind of the nativist mythology and it is a mythology but you'll you'll have people in the neighborhood who will who'll make the argument that well um people who've been here have roots they have in a stake you know there's there's a lot of different ways to to attack that so to speak and my first one would be to say well you know homeowner x ultimately what what's more important is it do human beings matter in this case or um are you just worried about property value and property value? I mean, a property value I'm actually a little sympathetic on because so many people sink so much of their money into their homes that if they were to go underwater like that, I, I would yeah, am really right, sympathetic right. to that. Okay. But what I'm not sympathetic to is is this question of um, quality of life. You don't see like how much this has changed. I've been here for 20 years and it was so great 20 years ago. It's apocalyptic out there. (laughs) You here for only like seven months can't Mm -hmm. possibly understand the long-term trajectory this neighborhood is on. And and also there's a lot of vague stuff. There's a lot of people will point to, you know, the house across the street that isn't fixed up. Right. Or the person down the street who doesn't mow their lawn, or these kinds of things, and and that kind of stuff. I'm like, I, I don't want to hear it. Right. You have an entire community, communities on top of communities who are just struggling to survive. And this country, this world, and this city, it's a hard place to live, and it's hard to come from your country, whichever country that is. It could be Canada. Yeah. And to have someone attack you over your lawn, mm-hmm. which is irrelevant. I mean, it's just right. flat out irrelevant as far as I, I'm concerned, is dog whistly and it's crazy. And it's just another way of saying, well, we don't want you here. Mm-hmm. I can't say that. So I am going to attack you over your lawn or I'm going to say you haven't painted or I'm going to say, you know, there's too many people in that house of yours. And it's a deconstruction of humanity and it's othering someone yeah. and it's and there's no excuse for it. To say that someone doesn't understand a neighborhood because they don't have roots put down and they don't have a stake doesn't mean that they didn't willfully plant a seed and are waiting for those roots to grow. And the more you attack that, the less likely they're ever able to generate the roots that you claim that they don't have. 
these people do want to stay. And the more that nativist rhetoric is allowed to pass, not just in our community, but with our politicians, the more we're alienating those people and forcing them to do the thing that we claim that they were going to do anyway. It it self-justifies the nativist rhetoric when all these people end up moving out or don't want to care or don't want to participate. We're the ones who are telling them, don't come, don't participate, because we think you're not going to participate. There's this idea that uh, a hegemony, right, a single insulated unit is somehow very strong. Um, And that if we just keep it within the neighborhood, if we just keep it with people who look like us and understand things and, and eat, you know, eat the same food and all this other stuff, somehow that forms a strong community. And there's a lot of people who believe that. I, you know, don't. Personally, I think that's probably obvious to anyone who's listened to this for two goddamn seconds. Yeah, did anybody know we're a progressive podcast? Yeah, yeah, I mean, <laughs> Holy crap. Oh, geez. Yeah, sorry. Uh-oh. Whoops. Yeah. Well, we just lost half unsubscribe, the listeners. Unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. Um, but I, I actually believe the opposite is is true and, and that diversity and plurality is is the actual societal strength. So when we talk about nativism in Bay Ridge... Uh, when we're trying to deconstruct that, I think it's it's in everyone's best interest that um, meaning of uh, equals take place. And that is kind of, I think, the sticking point. But essentially, and this gets into white supremacy, um, which we knew we were going to get to eventually, because <laughs> uh, that's one of the great underpins of American society. And we can't look at individuals in Bay Ridge and be like, well, why you got to be racist? You know, we we can't blame Bay Ridge for Bay Ridge didn't come up with racism. It didn't come up with nativism. It it it's it's we're all swimming in this stew, and so how do we deconstruct white supremacy and attack it at its ideological roots? Now, I'm not the best person. I I don't have a prescription for that. Trust me, if I did, I'd I'd be out doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't. Um, but other people do. And it's important for us to, to and me to find them and learn from them and read their writing or talk to them in person if possible, because ultimately that is the end goal. We've got to start the fight against white supremacy here, right now, today, um, and because it's got to start somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And it, it is it is a global fight, and we have to stand with you know uh, South Africa, right, which is still dealing with the with apartheid and has tremendous economic problems right we have to stand with all the working people everywhere i don't care if they're fishermen off of you know some vietnamese island i don't care if they're factory workers in detroit i don't care who they are if they're working what they're doing matters and um you know and that is 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 crucial to breaking down white supremacy which as i said at the beginning wants to fragment us wants to put these um issues into us into a mist so we cannot connect them, and we cannot connect them in history. We have to read the history. We have to understand how we got here. We have to learn, and again, I don't know how to do this yet. We have to learn how to talk um, about slavery and talk to the black communities about slavery. We have to learn how to talk about the indigenous genocide that gave us all the land we're physically standing on. Really yeah. interesting story about Bannon on that one, which I could talk if you, about. If you want to say you're a Bay Ridge nativist, I'm, I congratulate you on your Lenape roots, right. your Canarsie <laughs> roots, your Nyack roots. Because right, right. you ain't got any. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
No, I mean, it, it, and it's true. And, you know, it, actually, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because um, Bannon was on 60 Minutes. You know, you want to talk about populism and nativism at the very, like, like a, as a figurehead, right? Um, you know, he was he was talking to the reporter and uh, he's he's talking about, Bannon is, about uh, protecting the country from from the from the people who this country belongs to and who are from here. And the reporter, you know, goes, well, I mean, unless you're Native American, we're all immigrants here. And Bannon goes, don't say that. that you're, you, that's just below you. What? Wait, what wait. that read to me. And, and here's two things. One, the reporter capitulated to it and he dropped it, which I thought was a major mistake. And two, it showed me that at least in that occurrence, Bannon has no argument. The only thing he can say is don't bring that up. That's beneath you. There's no intellectual defense about it. And that is, you know, we, we talked about that kind of in the middle of how do we approach this and how do we talk about this? And, and I think the answer is just keep doing it. Keep telling truth into the mist and just be patient. Uh, as far as I can tell, there's only there's only two things to do. One is when given the opportunity to tirelessly and patiently explain and do not expect to win. Right. Um, that That's number one. And and number two um, is you know, the demographics of this area are changing and the demographics of the entire country is changing because of that change. It gives us an opportunity to um, connect with these new people who are coming here, learn from them, learn what they need, because the last thing we want to do is is tell anyone right. uh, we, we have to be receptive. This is where our nativism has to get broken down. Mm-hmm. Right. This is where we need to sit there and 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 learn and then go from there. What do we want Bay Ridge to be? We actually need, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and say it. I think we need a vision. Mm-hmm. We need a vision of how do we let everyone have a seat at the table, in, including, you know, the white conservatives that we we don't agree with. We have no choice. Yeah. Um, and we have to figure out a way to all live together because there are big problems that we have to solve and we're not going to solve them if we're all kicking each other in the shins ultimately right we have an opportunity to alter the way that bay ridge shows its political clout to really transform society we have to reconcile with these things and to me that's what's going to break down nativism bay ridge or anywhere else because it's everywhere thanks for coming on alan it's uh, been yeah, really no, great to have you thank yeah. you very much for having me it was it was great i hope i contributed something of use and um Definitely. I, I look forward to uh continuing to hear what you guys do and uh produce thanks again alan that's our last interview our biggest thanks to everyone who participated and gave us their feedback I hope it brought up a few ideas and points you weren't expecting from a discussion on nativism. Let's be real. I don't think a lot of people had something in mind for what they were going to see in this episode. It's always really interesting to me because nativism usually is spoken of on a federal, national level. and Steve Bannon and... Yeah, white nationalism. And that's definitely part of it. As Omar said, you have America first. Things are happening on the national level. But the effect here is to have a Bay Ridge first mentality, an attempt to distinguish in a neighborhood built on acceptance, as Lana said, good versus bad immigrants, or as Alan said, people being denied the right to have a seat at the table. And Jack said, the neighborhood has always had a low turnover and people stayed here because they felt welcome. Nativist rhetoric makes people feel unwelcome. 
it encourages them to leave. It's mean, it's vindictive, and it's against the character and history of Bay Ridge. And that's something that we heard running through every single one of our conversations. I mean, well, I think the thing that I really appreciated just hearing was was all of these diverse experiences, but also that shared humanity and that shared love of the neighborhood. I felt very strongly from every every person who we talked to. One of the things that we're going to pledge to do going forward is to bring you more stories of people's simple reflections on living here from all walks of life. We'd love to set up a kind of StoryCorps booth at senior centers, at community events. Look for us at the upcoming street fairs this spring to continue to break down this otherization by sharing our commonalities and our humanity. Thanks for listening. As always, we really appreciate the feedback we're getting. We're so glad you're tuning in, and the conversations that we're having on the blog and the Twitter are great. Um, if you'd like to read our show notes, they're up at RadioFreeBayRidge.org. Follow us on Twitter at, at @RadioFreeBR, and make sure to click subscribe in your preferred podcast app so you never miss an episode. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to leave a review. It really does help us get the word out. Finally, if you're an area resident with an idea for something you'd like to try and cover, get in touch. We've already had one neighbor reach out, and now he's working on an episode looking at how our district is going to get that new school that Justin Brandon promised us during a city council campaign. How do we put it last time? That we're trying to build a platform, not a soapbox. Mm -hmm. So yeah, get in touch. Until next time. Stay free, Bay Ridge. Stay free, Bay Ridge.